All right, turn, if you will, to the book of Colossians. Now, today we'll be looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Last week we considered uh, Colossians 2, 6 through 7, this sort of transitional passage where Paul is transitioning from what he said before in chapter 1 up to this point and how he's going to elaborate what he said and apply what he said as he moves from chapter 2, 8 to the end of the book. And the theme last week was uh, receiving Christ and continuing. You continue where you started and from the foundation from which you started. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, as we uh, looked at that passage last week, we looked at some background, and that background still has some significance, really, <laughs> The background has a lot of significance for the whole book. Uh, so we'll just go over just a few, uh, a subset of the background we looked at last week. And Colossae is uh, sort of on the western edge of what is now Turkey. Back then it was called Asia or Asia Minor, about 150 miles from the coast. And Colossae, it's over there circled on the right. Uh, Colossae was nestled in a valley between mountains and if you were to go to Colossae today to visit, those are the mountains you would see. That's right now the modern city of Hunaz, and it's sort of at the foot of Mount Cadmus. And it's a really interesting picture, very scenic. That's what you would wake up to every day, at least on a summer day. In the winter day, you'd see all the snow, I'm sure. <clears throat> but in the foreground, something you wouldn't notice, is actually the old city of Colossae. Here's this mound looking at it from the side, and if you were to look at it from the air, that is where Colossae was situated uh, in Turkey. Now Colossae, remember, is about 100 or so miles, 120 miles from Ephesus at the coast. And that's important because <clears throat> Ephesus is where a man named Epaphras most likely heard the gospel, was saved, was trained in the gospel by Paul at the school of Tyrannus. Remember Paul was there in Acts chapter 19. He was there for two full years. There's a giant revival throughout all of Asia Minor, which would include the area of Colossae. And there, this man, Epaphras, was converted, trained, and he went back to Colossae, preached the gospel. And so now there's correspondence between him and the Colossians. Paul is at this time in prison. Epaphras is with him in Rome, and they are writing back to the Colossians. Paul is writing in response to what he's heard from Epaphras of the things going on back at Colossae. And Colossae is in this river valley, and it's got two little villages where there are sister churches, sister villages, if you will, Laodicea and Hierapolis, those three together in the Lycus River Valley. And those three places got three letters uh, that are in the New Testament, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And two of those places, when they're talked about in Colossians and in Philemon, are said to be little house churches. And so we're to assume that the other in Hierapolis was also a house church. So three little nothing house churches got three letters from God. God cares about his people. He doesn't care about how many there are. All this emphasis on bigness is an American concept of things. It is not a biblical concept of things. Sure, you know, to have many disciples is great. 
but it's not the measure, certainly not the measure in God's eyes. Um, so they got Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were delivered to those cities. And it's kind of interesting, in the book of Colossians you, <coughs> and Philemon, you have six personal names. You don't have that many names. You don't have any names in the book of Ephesians. The only other book I think that rivals it in names might be Corinthians and uh, Romans. But here you have Epiphras, Archippus, Nymphus, Onesimus, Philemon, and Aphia. Those are named in those letters. So it's really interesting. Now, the, probably the more important thing to understand about the background of Colossae is it was on the trade routes. The trade routes coming from the east to the western shores of Turkey. And remember, in the Mediterranean Sea and in any time in history, the ocean is a place of commerce. We're seeing that right now as a pinch starts to happen in terms of the supply chain. It's because all these ships are, are all bottled up and can't get unloaded at the, at the seaports. And so the seaports are a major place where uh, commerce happens <clears throat> and these trade routes would terminate at the ocean at these seaports. They, these traders would drop off their goods that they're selling around the Mediterranean and they'd pick up their goods that they're getting uh, from the Mediterranean and taking them back. So Colossae was at the trailhead <clears throat> of how, how these trade routes kind of expanded out to the whole coast of Asia Minor. And that's important because trade routes bring problems. Now, if you, are a, <clears throat> if you own an inn, it probably brings great blessing, brings a, a living, it brings you some money, a trade. But in Colossae, it's a small town on a big trade route, and on trade routes, lots of ideas pass through. And Colossae is a book where Paul is having to address all these ideas packing, passing back and forth on those trade routes and landing in Colossae on the Christians and challenging them concerning their faith in Jesus Christ. And so as these ideas pass through, people are going to come, and, and when they come with their ideas and opinions, they're going to come with what Paul says, plausible arguments. Paul doesn't want anybody to delude you, to talk you into something through smooth and fair speech and persuasive words. Now remember, when someone comes with an idea, some people who are really determined to grab a hold of ideas and stick to them, they can become very persuasive, very aggressive, and it can have a big effect on Christians. It can have an effect on any Christian, um, but especially those who are kind of wavering or who are not clear about the gospel. And so the aim of all these uh, arguments, all these philosophies, the aim is to move people away from the gospel by little and little. And just to remind you, we have a lot of trade routes today. The biggest one starts with an I. It's called the internet. And you've got podcasts, which come on the internet, but that's the content. You've got celebrity preachers. You've got all this stuff vying for your attention and to have your mind reconfigured according to their opinions about Jesus and the gospel. Nothing new here. And so the biggest danger to Christianity is always not atheism. A denial of God is pretty easy to deal with. It's black and white. He says, there's no God. You say, where's your proof? They say, I don't have any. You say, there is a God. And he says, well, where's your proof, Mr. Christian? You say, well, it's all around you. You just won't accept the evidence. That's the point. The evidence is there. They just won't accept it. <clears throat> and so you just start to have those discussions that the evidence is there. God is there and he's not silent. He has spoken in general revelation. But when it comes to these sort of philosophies, 
they come and they try to reshape the gospel. They try to come to the gospel and say, I'm going to take the gospel and I'm going to kind of merge it with my opinions about this or that. And I'm going to shape the gospel in my direction. If someone's going to become a Christian when they come with these opinions, like I did, that's how I became a Christian. I had all these Eastern mystical ideas. And when I encountered the gospel, the gospel reshaped my opinions and brought me to the gospel. But there are many who are out here who try to reshape the gospel to their opinions. And so that's what was going on at Colossae. It's been going on for 2,000 years. It will continue to go on until the Lord Jesus returns. So these are something that applies to us right here today where we sit. Don't let anybody delude you with plausible arguments about this or that. Don't let them take counterfeit ideas and reshape the gospel with it. Don't let them blend the gospel with worldly concepts that ultimately distort and erode. Now at Colossae and all of Asia Minor, because they were all sort of in the same boat there, there were several flavors of false spiritualities. There were philosophical challenges from the prevailing Greek worldview. These are mainly abstractions and ontological hierarchies regarding the metaphysical world. Now those are some big words, we're going to unpack that in a little bit. But that's generally what it was. And the ideas about existence and reality, which is called metaphysics, it's, uh, there's physics, the world you can touch, and then there's the world that you can't touch that's meta or beside the physical world. That's why they call it meta, beside the physical world. It's the unseen spiritual world or invisible world. And so they would dabble in metaphysics, <clears throat> and it was actually more philosophical than religious, as we'll see. And Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through these philosophies and empty deceptions. There are some other people who were <clears throat> focusing on the gospel and they were trying to impose old covenant mosaic ordinances onto the Christians there. And Paul says, don't let anyone act as your judge. Reject it. And someone comes to you and says, you got to keep the Sabbath. It's real simple. Come right here to Colossians and says, I don't have to keep the Sabbath and shame on you for trying to impose it on me. Shame on you. Because your Bible tells you not to do it to anybody. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. And by faith in Christ and belief in Christ and that new heavens and new earth, that true land of promise, that is our Sabbath rest. Then there are other people who come with religious mysticism. Particularly in America, there's a group of people with this sort of enlightenment spirituality, this secret knowledge or special knowledge or wisdom. And, and when I was in all those Eastern philosophies, the thing about them is they're like the fog. I mean, it's just all these foggy notions that you can't really get a hold of. But they sound so good because the words are high sounding and, and, and all of that. And they have this sort of undefinable spirituality that just sounds good in some general way. And it can take people captive. It can defraud people of the truth. And their self-abasement, these noble mystic sages with this aura of pseudo-spirituality. They're the spiritual guides and you see them, the Maharishis and all those folks. That's the kind of stuff that was going on. And it spawned in America starting in, in my generation, this, this massive set of new age movements, awakenings, so to speak, enlightenments, crystals, white light, all this stuff that continues to this day. And Paul's saying, don't let anybody defraud you of the truth through those things. They talk about angels. And these aren't the true angels, they're the false set of angels, false religious experiences. They've had visions, they've had experiences and they get all puffed up in all these descriptions and elaborations and go clearly away from the gospel. 
And all of this reduces the universe to a man-centered humanistic dynamic in which you are said to be able to manipulate God with crystals. You can manipulate reality with crystals, turning them a certain way or placing them in a certain place. Your shui, is that what they're called? Is that it? Yeah. Fin shui or fin shui or something. Anyway, <clears throat> all that stuff's going on in America. It was going on in Colossae. And then there's this, all of that sort of, whenever you get into that world, you get into the world of religious asceticism. There's this practice of selective self-denial. I'm not gonna eat this, not gonna taste that, not gonna touch the other, not gonna handle, because if I touch it, I'll be holy or unholy, that kind of thing. And so all of these external practices designed to give spiritual attainment, at least by those who are promoting them, and they will never do any such thing. And we see this simple explanation of what this sort of elusive term, elementary principles, simply means. It means principles of the world. Religion on a plane of worldly things. Religion on a plane of ceremonialism. Religion on a plane of liturgy. Religion on a plane of Islamic prayer rituals. Religion on a plane of Christianized dietary regulations. Religions on some plane of manipulating this and manipulating that and it all operates out of worldly principle, not the Holy Spirit of God. So these are the things that were coming on the Colossians. This is what they had to deal with. So you think, if you think you're in a mess, because every time you turn on some media screen, however big or you know, small it is, you're bombarded with worldly philosophies, with all these mystical versions of spirituality, with people who think, oh, I've got to go back to the Old Testament to enjoy the New Testament, and oh, you know, there's completed Jews and all these silly notions, or asceticism that I can do these rituals. If you're bombarded with that, well, welcome to the party. Welcome to Colossae, because that's what they had to deal with. Today, we have a couple extra things. On the one hand, we have scientism, science that claims to be an absolute authority because it has empirical evidence for everything it says. And that's a bunch of hoopla. It has a little bit of empirical authority, but anybody who ever actually analyzes calculus by which we send places to the things to the moon, if you ever analyze calculus, you see it's not a perfect mathematics. It's an estimation. Even the mathematics of sending stuff to the moon, it's just an estimation. It's kind of guesswork. We're kind of, you know, going in this circle. We're, we're kind of doing this. And yeah, they can make things work with it, but there's no such thing as an absolutism in science. And then there's statism coming on America in just a, such a significant way that the state is God. I mean, whatever version it takes on, whether it takes on the, the version of the neo-Marxism of our day, whether it takes on fascism, all the things surrounding it, Black Lives Matter, all this stuff, it's here trying to encroach in the church of Jesus Christ, trying to mold and shape the gospel. When it comes to social justice, it has absolutely ravaged the church. People were unprepared to deal with social justice, and many have been taken away, at least for now, into changing and molding and shaping the gospel to conform to it. And so this, what's going on at Colossae is very much significant for what's happening in our day. And so when we read in our passage, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, it doesn't so much mean receiving Jesus personally with personal faith and a personal indwelling of the Spirit. That is true. That is real. That's, the, that's the, the icing on the cake of being a Christian. 
But here Paul is meaning as you received the truth of Christ, as you received the true Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Don't be moved about by all these false teachings, all these worldly philosophies, all these ideas, all these ideologies. And we know that that's what he's talking about because he says you receive Christ as you were taught. And so we receive Jesus personally and we became born again personally in the context of truth. And it is that truth we are to adhere to. And so <clears throat> these philosophies, these, I don't know, Judaism, asceticism, mysticism, all these things aren't so much an attack on the gospel as they are an attack on the true Christ. That's what they're attacking. They all have this in common. Their essence is this. They are diminishing the person and place and work of Jesus Christ. That's their goal. Either by denial, substitution, or distortion. They are there to change the gospel and at the center of that gospel is the Lord Jesus the Christ. And that's what it's about. And that's what was going on in Colossae, very apropos for today. So this morning, a bit of an introduction there. But it's important because this passage we're about to look at is just very often looked at through Christian eyes of, well, I'm going to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he has deity because Paul says it in Colossians. And so we tend to look at it from a systematic theology. It's one more passage in our list of the passages showing that Jesus is the Son of God. But this passage is more than that. The richness and fullness of this passage comes alive against the background of all the heresies that Paul is addressing. And so that's why, again, the introduction, and we'll be looking at a couple more things, because to fully appreciate this section, these three verses, we have to have that background in view. So Colossians 1, 15 through 17, and he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So let's just pray and ask the Lord to be with us in this truly blessed and crown jewel of a passage. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne, and surely a passage like this, as we uh, look at it with our eyes and contemplate it with our minds and try to meditate on it in our hearts, surely this passage is close to your heart. This is the son of your love. And Lord, you present him to us in all of his glory, in all of his fullness, in the whole spectrum of who he is and what he has accomplished. And Lord, <clears throat> we know that he's accomplished redemption for us on the cross, and we love that, and we focus on that, but there's a bigger background, a bigger uh, framework in which Jesus has done this, and that framework is your creation at which your son is the heart of it and the soul of it and the reason for it and the purpose for it. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage today, we just pray, Lord Jesus, you would come down in person to each one of us. The Holy Spirit, you would come and you would bear witness of the reality of these things. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Lord, make that that reality that is eternally in your heart and being. Lord, make it a reality for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So our passage, interesting things about the passage. I was going to look at each verse individually, but it seemed better just to consider the passage as a whole and just to keep it as a whole because it is a whole. And there are some just really cool things about the passage if you just sort of sit and just observe some of the terminology. And the first thing, if you'll, you'll look at the ther- terminology and maybe do some counting, you'll find out that there are six personal pronoun references to Jesus. This passage focuses on Jesus. He's, he's the subject material of it. He is the image of God, for by him all things were created. Created through him, created for him. He is before all things, and him all things hold together. This is all about Jesus Christ. What is his place in the world order? Who is he? What has he done? So we see in this passage, just right at the outset, this focus on Jesus tells us that Jesus is always and forever primary. He's always primary. He's never secondary. He's never tertiary. He is always and forever primary. No one else, no other name appears in this passage. There's no adjustments. There's no, well, Jesus did this. And then there was Michael, the archangel. See, that would be what the Gnostics would do with the people with all their visions and supposed religious you know, experience of God will tell you. That's not what Paul will tell you. That's not what the Holy Spirit will tell you. That's not what God the Father will tell you. He is always and forever primary. And secondly, we see from this passage, he is always and forever solitary. He shares his place with no one. He shares his place with no thing. He is primary and he is solitary. And in the metaphysical arrangement of the universe... Jesus Christ is eternally at the center. Eternally. Always was, always is, always will be. What's the phrase in the book of Revelation? I am the, and the, the beginning and the end. Right here in the book of Colossians, right there in the book of Revelation, and a whole bunch of other places. So whenever you think of Jesus, whenever you think of the gospel, whenever you hear people come to them with their ideas, and remember, it's our job to take this gospel and encounter people with it and try to talk to them and try to bring them and their ideas to come into line with the gospel of God. That's our job. That's called witnessing. That's called proclaiming Jesus. It's called talking to people about Jesus. Hearing them out. What are their opinions? What are their ideas? And okay, think of this. Okay, let's open the Bible a little bit and let's see if that fits with what's going on. Michael Allen was telling me the other day that that's uh, that's how he started coming around here at New Covenant. Is uh, he was jabbering some of his bright ideas to Chris Greer, and Chris listened and listened, and finally said, "Well, let's look at the Bible and see if that's true." And uh, Lo and behold, Michael said, wait a minute, it's not true. And he went home and thought about it. And that's what brought him around. And so that's what we need to do with people. We need to listen, find out where where are you at? Because they could be in the Judaistic world, they could be in the Greek philosophical world, they could be in the mystical world. 
They could be in the statism, social justice world. They can be in all these worlds. Wherever they are, that's where we take them and we bring them to the gospel. So the only reason we learn about all those things is so that we can know how to bring the gospel to bear on their thinking patterns. So for me, when I you know, get these big books on world religions, they weary me because they want to use, you know, tell me, well, here's the Buddhist term for this, that, and the other. I'm like, I don't really care. What I care about is how does a Buddhist generally think, and I'll know how to take the Bible and address them with it. And I happen to do know that because I was a Buddhist, so I know where to go. But you're not going to win them over by talking to them on their terms. You're going to win them over by presenting the terms of the gospel on the gospel's own terms. So don't get caught up in figuring out everything about Islam. You don't need to know. All I got to know is know the basics. There's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Get a counter to that. Get a clear counter to that. And know how to take the word of God and bring it to them as peaceably as you can, and as clearly as you can, and as amenably as you can. But the first thing is not to be amenable. The first thing is to bring the truth. That's first and foremost. Amenability, niceness, all that. Okay, that's, you know, that's some extra. That's the, the framework. But the meat of the matter is the truth of God. And we need to bring it to people because that is the power of God. So there's not only a focus on Jesus in this passage, but there's a focus on creation, existence, and reality. Some of you might think, well, Steve, you're using big words, metaphysics, ontological. Well, Paul's right in this world. That's what he's talking about. If you don't know what ontology means, fine, who cares? Do you know what Paul means here? When he talks about creation, do you know that that's the physical universe? When he talks about thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, well, you know that's how the universe is somehow ordered and run. That's how the universe works. And philosophy just tries to get in there and try to examine the universe and give it some terminology, maybe some specialized terminology, to describe what you can't see. Science supposedly is supposed to stick with what you can see. But instead of sticking with what you can see, they've said, oh, I'm going to stick with what I can see, and oh, by the way, it's the only thing there is. If you can't see it, then it doesn't exist. Well, that's a philosophy. That's not science. So, you know, accept their science where it's valid, but toss their philosophy out the door. Things you can't see, things you can't put in a test tube, things you can't measure with a ruler, you can't weigh on a scale. That's the world of metaphysics. That's the world of spiritual reality, of the unseen world. And that's a bigger world than the world of the physical universe. Interesting that there's such a thing as dark matter that they think comprises 80% of the universe. There's stuff out there that they can't measure that comprises most of what's out there. Kind of an interesting idea. All these scientists know everything, but <laughs> of course, they know this is true and that's true, but nah, we don't really know what makes up the universe. We're kind of guessing at it. So Paul's presenting Jesus Christ with a specific reference to creation. This passage is not about redemption. It's about creation. It's about metaphysics. Because creation is the foundation of reality. That's why we start not with the cross, but Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
That's where the Bible starts. It gives you a metaphysic of the universe. God created everything out of nothing. God gave it order. God gave it meaning, purpose, teleology. Telos, the Greek word for the end, the finish line. God gives purpose and meaning to all these things. That's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And what Paul is doing is he's coming and saying, oh, by the way, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there was somebody there besides God the Father. That's why it says in verse 1, I believe, 25, let us make man in our image, or 126. It's let us. It's a plural verb. Let us make man. There was more there than one person of the Godhead. It was not just God the Father creating things. It was God, the triune God, creating things. And that's what Paul is adding to that dimension of Genesis 1 through 3. Jesus Christ fits right in with the one true God who created all things. And he's the image of this invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. All things have been created. All things hold together. This is terminology of a physical universe, its existence, its reality, its structure, its metaphysics, its ontology. Ontology is a word that comes from ontos, which simply means to be. The being of the universe. And Paul puts this before he elaborates redemption, which he will in the next verses, verses 18 through 20. Before he elaborates those, he elaborates this metaphysic. Because that was what was being challenged at Colossae. You see, in America, you know, for several hundred years, it was a Christian worldview. There were no challenges to that. So no one dealt with those things. No one thought in those terms. The big debates were all within Christendom, within Christian concepts. Is God sovereign or not sovereign? Did Jesus die for everybody or only for some? I mean, those are all Christian concerns, and those are the great discussions and debates that went on in the English-speaking world until my generation. And my generation opened the floodgates of all of the mysticism and false spiritualities that were being encountered at Colossae. And so we have to be able to deal with these things. We need to be clear, clear about creation, about existence, about reality, and how Jesus Christ relates to all these things. We have to be clear about creation before we can appreciate redemption. A lot of errors about redemption come because people have errors about creation and the nature of man and the nature of sin. You see, you can't come talk to someone about election right off. You got to talk to them about the total depravity of a human being. Otherwise, election is just a debate about nothing. But when finally someone realizes, gosh, without the grace of God, I'll never believe on Jesus, then they're like, give me some election, man. Give me a whole big, full, overflowing cup of election. Because that's the only thing that saves people or puts them in the way of salvation. So we have to be clear about some of these more fundamental, basic things. And because the Colossians weren't that clear, because they were coming out of paganism, they're coming out of this world of philosophy and mysticism. It was easy for them to still be caught, to still be questioned, to still wonder. And so Paul gives us this amazing passage here. There's this focus on creation, existence, and reality. And because of it, just look at a couple things. Now, I don't expect you to remember any of this. Just trying to give you a sense of what the philosophy was saying, and it might sort of help you with some of the stuff going on today. In the Greek worldview, there were three layers to existence and reality. 
The first layer at the bottom was the layer they called non-being. And then there's this middle layer they called being, and then this top layer they called beyond being. So there's non, there's being, and then there's beyond. So in their formulation of metaphysics, of existence, reality, ontology, they talked about these three layers in which things exist. All right? Well, that was old Greek philosophy, basically, Platonism. Plato from, what, four or 500 B.C.? And in their elaboration of this, they would say, okay, this, this world of non-being, this physical world of the body, well, this world of non-being is evil. It's a bad place to be. You need to not live in the physical world that's controlled by bodily appetites and desires, but you need to be more noble. You need to be in this good middle layer of being a soulish person, a person who lives in the soul, who has wisdom and who has the logos, you see. And so the Greeks believed that your ability to think was called the logos. It simply means word, but it doesn't mean a spoken word. Rhema means a word embodying a concept. So all of our ability to conceptualize is the world of the logos. To understand, to put two and two together, that's the world of the logos. Now this world of beyond being, well that world's unknowable. There was debates of whether it was the physical cosmos or whether there was something beyond the cosmos and all those kind of things, just like today. So it's kind of mystical when you get up into that world of the unknowable, of beyond being. But this is how Platonism viewed the world. This is how everybody thought. This is how everybody, what they were born into, what they grew up with, what they believed and how they functioned and how they made decisions in their everyday life. See, we walk around going, well, there's a God, there's an earth that he made, and we don't even go through. We just have these sort of subtle, unconscious concepts of the whole framework of the universe, don't you? If I say, well, that's a metaphysic, you go, I don't know what that is, but I know how the universe is put together. I'm like, good, that's a metaphysic. So you walk around with a subliminal metaphysic that, that gives you your, your picture of making all your decisions, of evaluating everything. Well, this is the Greeks' picture of the world, and that's how everybody grew up. That's the world into which Paul came and preached the gospel. Now, in this world, there are people who are just raw philosophers and who would laugh at all the, you know, the pantheon of the God of this and the God of that, because they were more noble than that. But the average person didn't so much believe in the gods, but they started to believe this religious version of Platonism. And so they were syncretistic. They would take this raw philosophy of Platonism and they would marry it to concepts of God because in the end you personalize things. I've got my bees. I've got a little beehive on my porch. I think there's five or six bees there. They come out and they you know, get all the pollen off my plants or whatever they do and I come out and watch them every day. They're kind of gone now. So, But <clears throat> all summer there are these bees. I just love my bees. I'm going to give them a name, you know. I'm going to personalize these bees, but in the end, they're just bees. They last about a month, and they get replaced by another bee. <clears throat> and, uh, but I tend to personalize, and so as personal human beings, in that Greek world, they personalize things, and they went and, oh gosh, they took Platonism, and they syncretized it with their personalized religious beliefs. And so they would say, you know, 
We live in this world, those still three layers, and the bottom layer, the world of the body, the physical world, which is bad. Well, if that physical world is bad, that can go two ways. At Corinth, it went to indulgence. If the body's bad, so what? Meats for the belly, belly for the meats. I want to go have sex, so what? It's just the body, it's just the world of non-being. Who cares? You see, their philosophical view of the world, that we're not the image of God, that our bodies are not considered the image of God. Rather, we're just, you know, this world of non... I can do whatever I want with my body. That was Corinth. But at Colossae, they went the opposite direction. If the body's bad, then we got to beat the body, buffet the body, deny the body, manage the body with all these religious activities. Don't touch this, don't eat that, eat the other. Be careful if you get into health foods that you don't get into this world of doing things. You're not going to be holy or unholy because of what you eat. So that was this bottom level. In the middle level, the religious syncretism with Greek philosophy talked about a mystical enlightenment. Well, there's this unknown existence or being out here, and maybe I can get in touch with that existence and get some enlightenment about it. And so I can start to know the unknown deity. And so they start to syncretize and turn philosophy into a religion. Now, if anybody's ever looked at Buddhism, been in Buddhism, been around Buddhism, that's exactly what Buddhism does. Buddhism is ascetic. You go to become a monk if you're really serious. You beat your body, you discipline your body, you deny yourself, you become reclusive, get out of the world because the body's evil. The body puts you in touch with the world and you don't, you're trying to get out of the world and you sit around in aum and and you meditate on who knows what you meditate on and you say all these incantations so that you can get this mystical enlightenment so that one day you can arrive at nirvana. See what it is? It's this three-tiered concept of the world. Nothing new, it's here today in America. We get an Americanized version of it. But the version that existed at Colossae was an emerging Gnosticism which basically said there's this evil physical world at the bottom, hence asceticism. There's this good God at the top, and in between, well, the good God can't touch the physical world on its own, because God would be, you know, collaborating with evil. So the good deity must relate to the evil physical world through a series of intermediaries. And they had names for them, like this angel, that angel. That's why Paul talks about the worshiping of angels. It's very much like Pentecostalism. When people get out there, they just start talking about, well, there's this angel, this, and there's this. I mean, it's just crazy. It's Gnosticism. So there are these intermediaries. Hence the language of Paul, principalities and powers, things in the heaven, things that are invisible. See, start to see the meaning of Paul's words, what he's addressing. And here's what the false teachers were saying with their philosophy. Jesus is but one of these intermediaries. Jesus is but one. Well, when Paul hears that, here's what we get. Here's Paul's response to that diminishing of Jesus to being but one of many intermediaries between some unknowable, unknown, undefinable God 
in a world that's described as inherently evil when God calls it inherently good in Genesis. See why you need to know Genesis? And so he's saying Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, this focus on existence and reality. Things created, things created, things holding together. Now our passage also has a focus on comprehensiveness. Think about it. He's the firstborn of what? All creation. All things. By him all things were created. All things have been created through him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Five times we read these absolutely inclusive phrases. They are inclusive of Jesus and they are exclusive of everything else. All creation, all things comes under this perspective of who Jesus Christ is. Every created thing has its source, its meaning, its point of reference to Jesus Christ. All things. And if you didn't get it, if you say, well, but you're sure you mean all things? Well, what about this? Well, whether it's in heaven or on earth, Paul itemizes every possible dimension of all things, whether it's in the heavens above or on the earth beneath, as they would conceptualize things. Jesus is part of these all things. What about things you can see? Yep, all things. What about things you can't see? Yep, all things. Whether it's visible and we can define it and empirically analyze it, or whether it's invisible and we're left to the revelation of God for it, whether it's something in between our own souls that are intangible and yet we all share a common sort of world of experience and knowledge and perspective, all these things are included. Then he talks about thrones and dominions. These are these earthly rulers. Gnosticism was very much about hierarchies of rulership and, and levels of angels and authorities and things like that. Whether thrones or dominions and <clears throat> whether rulers or authorities. Now, these rulers and authorities, you wouldn't at first sight think of them other than just an elaboration of thrones and dominions. Well, thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities. But when you look at these words in the original, these words occur in Ephesians and in Ephesians, Paul uses this term. He talks about rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So back here in Colossians, when Paul talks about rulers and authorities, this is terminology not only of the things on the earth, thrones and dominions, but of things in the heavens, rulers and authorities. So there's that comprehensiveness. He focuses on the, the divine essence of Jesus. He's the invisible, the image of the invisible God. An image is a representation of something. When you see the image, you see a representation of what that image is trying to convey, what it's representing. And Jesus Christ, in his own being, as the God-man, is the image of the invisible God. He is the <clears throat> tangible representation an expression of what? Of a few qualities of God? Or of the invisible God? The entire God? The being of God, the essence of God, the character of God, the purposes of God, the goodness of God, the truth of God, the love of God, 
the justice of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We see that image spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3, and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And when you see the glory of Christ, what do you know about him? He's the image of God. Everybody who has truly heard from God, everybody in whom the Holy Spirit has come and given a new birth, they may not have the words, they may be a little bit scattered about the doctrine and how to state it, but one thing they're clear about, this Jesus is God. Somehow, some way, he's God. That's the witness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will bear witness of me. image of God. The writer of the Hebrews talks about Jesus being the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. I mean, look at these words. Look at how specific they are. He irradiates the glory of God. He's not like the moon, which is sort of, you know, reflecting the glory of the sun. He's the sun. He's radiating. The glory of God is radiating from him because he's God. He's the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation. There's no wavering. There's no he's the representation except for. And this whole chapter in Hebrews 1 is there to show the deity of Jesus Christ. So in Colossians it's clear that we're talking about being the image of the invisible God. But the focus is also in his divine activity. Only God creates. Again, it's really clear. Take a sheet of paper, draw a line. On this side, there is eternity, and there is one being who is creating. On the other side, there is not eternity, and there is not someone creating. The definition of God is he's on this side of the line. He creates, and he's eternal. And Jesus is on this side of the line. He creates. He's the image of God. In him all things were created. Your passage may say for by him, but really it should be translated in him. And there's the reason we need to see it as in him. Created by him is kind of an interpretation. Now, that's going to be one of our conclusions. But the in him is bigger than by him. The in him includes by him. What Paul is saying is that this whole universe was created by and with reference to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the eternal son and he's the one for whom the creation came into being. He's the one by whom the creation came into being. He's the one in whom the creation came into being. And that is his relationship to existence and reality. In him were all things created. Not only does he create, but he sustains. In him all things hold together. Jesus is currently giving existence cohesion and order to the entire universe. From the quantum quarks up to the big black holes and everything in between. Jesus did this before he was incarnated, he did this in the womb, he did this on the cross, 
And he certainly does this in his resurrection glory. By him all things hold together, consist, are rational. The word means more than just a physical holding together. It means a rational reason to be, a rationale. And Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now something about this firstborn, you're going to encounter Jehovah's Witnesses. They're going to come to your door and they're going to say, firstborn means he was created first. And after that, he created everything else. Because what does firstborn mean? Well, maybe in their world, it means the first person born in the family. But in the first century world, and clearly throughout the Greek-speaking world, the term firstborn was ambiguous. It could mean the first one born. This is my firstborn. But it also had an equally tenable meaning and significant in that world. It could mean the primary one, the one with the birthright. Remember selling the birthright back with the Old Testament, with the, the patriarchs? So this word could mean the first one born, and it can equally and easily mean the one who has the rights and privileges of the firstborn. And that meaning is decided always and only by the context. You see, the word can go either way, and the only way you know which way it's going is by the context. So if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and says, oh, this means the first one born, you can say, well, that could also mean the one who has the right of the firstborn, who has the primacy, the inheritance. It can equally mean it, and the only way you can determine the meaning is looking at the context. So let's look at the context, and let's see how the context uses this term, firstborn. Well, we've been looking at it. The context is divine activity of creating and sustaining the universe. Is that something a created person does, or is that something God does? That should be a no-brainer. Of course, when you're dealing with the Jehovah's Witness, you're going to have to argue. It'll, it won't be in me a, a no-arguer, but it will be a no-brainer. Paul's context throughout this passage here is ultimate meaning and purpose that we're going to look at quickly in a second. The firstborn of all creation, just in the very context itself, is not about being the first one born and after that everything created through him. It's about the one who is the, has the primary birthright. And Paul, if you don't look at the context and see that creation and sustaining the universe is only something God can do, well, he's also before all things. That's what he means. Paul says, you want to know what I mean by firstborn? Well, let me say it again. He's before all things. He's first in regard of all things. He's the primary one. And then Paul goes on. Firstborn also takes on this connotation that all things have been created through him and for him. This is why he's the firstborn. Everything exists because of Jesus Christ the Lord. Everything finds its meaning in Jesus Christ the Lord. The ultimate purpose of everything is Jesus Christ the Lord. All things have been created through him and for him. He is the eternal God. Because only the eternal God can do these things and be these things. So just to recap, Paul, in answer to all of the varied worldly philosophies attacking the Christians at Colossae, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn that has the primacy over all creation. 
He's the one doing the creating. He's the one doing the holding together. He is before all things in every detail. So quickly, if God did this with his son, in our passage you read before it that Jesus is the son of God's love. If that's who Jesus is to God, then what is it when a human being denies Jesus Christ? What is a personal denial of Christ? It is monumentally awful. Every denial of Christ. Denying what God has ordained in the very fabric and existence of his universe. Think about the emptiness of the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and so on and so on, who diminish Jesus to a place where he's not the eternal God. They are utterly empty. And that's why when you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, don't debate their theology because they've been schooled on how to debate you. Start asking them how they're doing in God. Are your sins forgiven? Do you have eternal life? Start dislodging them at a level that's personal instead of theoretical. Think of the emptiness of world religions, the Buddhists. They don't have Jesus. All they have is a philosophy. Islam, they reduce Jesus to just another intermediary, a prophet. Hinduism, well, Jesus is on the shelf with millions of other gods. False spiritualities deny Jesus altogether, the emptiness of world religions. But what about the emptiness of self-centeredness? What about Christians who have not yet let God break the bones of their soul? To where they lose their innate self-centeredness and live unto Christ and others. See, for some of you, your life has been a life of breaking. I know mine has been. God breaking you to the point where your self-centeredness is gone. It's been absorbed into this greater reality that Christ is the reason to be. And when Christ is my reason to be, what do I get? I get Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. I get the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I get something way bigger than just myself. I give up a little and get a ton back. The emptiness of self-centeredness. The blessing of being in Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, whether you're doing well or not doing well, if you're in Christ, you are blessed beyond measure. Joy unspeakable and full of glory is the language to be used. And you should embrace Get yourself back on track. And think about the blessing of living for Christ, the richness of living for Christ, the significant eternal purpose of living for Christ, fellowship with God and living for Christ, and just plain old stinking excitement. Don't you get excited? I mean, they can be boring, but then you think about, gosh, you know, there's Mary Ellen. They're over there. We helped them get a fish pond. This is exciting. I don't know if that excites you. It excites me. Puts a smile on my face. Think that somebody else is happy in the world when I'm sad. At least I imagine them happy. I'm sure he has her, she has her times. So these are the things, the import of the passage, but one thing I leave you with. It seems to summarize it best. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. God has put his life in his son. When you start talking to a Buddhist, 
or an Islamic, or really anybody. Don't sit there and debate about this and that. Don't get in the science. Just say, hey, look, God has put his life in his son. It's not narrow-minded, but if you want to call it that, fine. God has put his life in his son. Life for you is in his son. The whole universe was made for his son. And that's where he's put life for anybody who will come. And he who has the son has the life. The issue is not this or that, whether you believe this or that. The issue is ultimately, do you have the son? Sure, you've got to repent of your sins, but you're not going to be able to repent of everyone all at once to be saved. Are you coming to Jesus so that you have the son? Are you laying a hold of him by faith? You have the son. He who has the son has the life. Do you have the son? That's the big question. Because God has put all of his life for any human being in his son, nowhere else. Not in Buddha, Muhammad, or anybody else. He's put it in his son. And he who does not have the son does not have the life. So the question for every one of you this morning, how no matter how old you are or are not, do you have the son of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and thank you that uh, Christianity is not some complex thing. False teachers come and try to make it complex and confuse and blow smoke and make things challenging and difficult. But you come simply to us with this issue, do we have your son by faith? Have we turned from ourselves, from the world, from falsehood, from vanity to your son by faith? Lord, in that turning, when we have your son, then we have everything. Lord, just pray this morning, most of us here are believers. Days can get long, times can become hard, or worse, just plain old dull. And Lord, always remind us that you have given us everlasting, eternal, immeasurable, infinite life in your Son. And we have him. And no matter what we go through in this life, we have the life that's in your Son. We just ask you to do this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.